the sky is blue and the grass is green, I think of summertime. Now and then a cloud will bring raindrops from the sky. Sometimes we'd run out in the sun when the day was bright and clear. Michael Parks. Yeah. Hi, everybody. This is Amanda Reyes, and you're listening to the Made for TV Mayhem show. And um, we opened up with a beautiful song by Michael Parks, who is the subject of our episode tonight. I'm really excited to talk about him. I'm so in love with Michael Parks. I think he's such a wonderful talent. And we're going to be talking about two of his TV movies tonight. Um, one is called Escape from Bogan County, which came out in 1977. And the second one is called The China Lake Murders, which was a made for basic cable film from 1990. Um, so just a caveat. Uh, I chose Michael Parks because Escape from Bogan County finally became available. It's a movie I've been looking for for many years now, and it finally just sort of popped up on my radar. And so I was thinking of what to pair it with, and I, you know, Michael Parks is in it, and he's highlighted in any of the press and um, the clips that you might find online. And so I thought, ooh, we'll do a Michael Parks episode. It feels right. I didn't realize that he's really only in the second half of Escape from Bogan County. So this is sort of a half tribute, but... But if you're sitting at home and you're thinking to yourself, why aren't you doing Thank King Bronson? We're going to do Thank King Bronson at some point. So we're real good, guys. Um, but anyway, so tonight our main focus is going to be Michael Parks. But we'll be talking about all kinds of people. And um, two movies that I quite enjoyed. Um, I had never seen Escape from Bogan County before, so we'll talk about that. And The China Lake Murders is a personal favorite. So let's see what everybody else thinks of it. And let me introduce you to my co-host. Hey, Dan, what's up? Not much. I, I want to apologize to everyone this evening. I've, I've actually had a bad cold the past few days, so if I sound a little strange, please forgive me. But I'm ready. I'm so excited to talk about Michael Parks. It's I've got the movie, I've got Bogan County playing nearby, and I am ready. I am ready. Oh, I'm so excited. Nate? Yeah. I'm very ready to go solve some China Lake murders while escaping from Bogan County simultaneously. Oh, my God. I think you've outdone us both. That would be really good. If somebody out there has a really good uh, sense of editing, if you could put that film together for us. Oh, yes. I would watch it. Yes. Because they both have similar landscape. Mm -hmm. And he's a cop. Sweaty guys. There is a lot of sweat. More so in Escape from Bogan County. I can kind of take it better in China Lake Murders. Maybe we should have paired Escape from Bogan County with that movie we watched, Through Naked Eyes. Remember that with David Soul? Yeah. Because he's super sweaty in that, and it was really yes. not pleasant at all. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I did like that movie. Um, but speaking of things that fall into your lap, um, something else fell into my lap, and his name was Jeffrey Kramer. And I just want to briefly just – this is totally going off topic, but it's on my mind. So I don't know if either one of you remember a show or have heard of a show from 1979 called Struck by Lightning. Oh, yes. Yep. Which starred Jeffrey Kramer. And there's only three episodes that ever aired. And basically, it's about a guy named Ted Stein who inherits a castle that's been turned into a hotel or motel, I guess a hotel. And he doesn't realize that he's part of the Frankenstein family and that, like, Victor Frankenstein was, like, his great-great-grandfather. And so he doesn't just inherit a hotel. He inherits Frankenstein's monster. And hilarity ensues. And I've been looking for that series for, yes. like, 20 years. Yep. The pilot is now on YouTube. I don't promote 
illegal uploads onto YouTube ever. But for this, I will because it is super rare and it is amazing that it finally surfaced after all these years. And it's okay as a show, as a cultural artifact. It's amazing. Um, Jack Elam plays Frankenstein's monster and the opening theme song is You Are So Beautiful to Me. <laughs> What's the name of it again? It's called Struck by Lightning. Yes. Okay. And it's really just about him getting struck by lightning all the time. Yep, yep. That's With, right. like, Jeffrey Kramer saying, I'm a mathematician, and I can't help you, and blah, blah, blah. And, like, and everybody laughs, and it's wonderful. So, anyway, um, that's something that came up with the wonders of YouTube that I've been looking for for forever. What hasn't surfaced, though, is Lottery. Oh, no. Which is like my all-time favorite TV show mm-hmm. with Ben Murphy and Marshall Coles. And I can't find – I have the pilot, but I can't find any other episodes of it, and it's killing me. So if you're listening and you have episodes of Lottery on VHS somewhere, please upload them. <laughs> it would be really nice. So anyway, let's get back to Michael Parks. Let's get back to the real topic. I just wanted to promote that because I think it's so neat it showed yes. up online. Yes, yes, yes. So I did a very brief biography that's just kind of jumping around about Michael Parks, so bear with me. Um, I didn't necessarily want to go too deep into his life, uh, although he had a really fascinating and somewhat tragic life. Um, and I think maybe that helped him a little bit with his acting. Uh, I think he was channeling a lot of different things. He was a really unique kind of guy. And I guess when I think of Michael Parks, I kind of think of Robert Forrester, I think because they both had this sort of second kickstart to their career, like sort of in the second half of their lives. I don't know that Michael Parks really hit the same heights that Robert Forrester did, but they both got this kind of um, very, I don't know that Michael Parks is personable. Robert Forrester is like a guy next door type, but there's something very working class about both of them, something really relatable about them. Um, uh, And I think Michael Parks is so low key that sometimes it's, like you're in another dimension with him and but he has a lot of presence at the same time and he's a really he's always been a really fascinating actor to me and when we get to the china lake murders we may talk about his hair because he had really amazing hair guys um so michael parks was born in corona california on april 24th 1940 he grew up doing a lot of odd jobs i read that he actually used to upholster coffins which i thought was really interesting his uh first tv role came in 1960 when he got parts and shows like dick powell's zane gray theater um actually during that time though he was on broadway in a production of gypsy which must have been amazing um he was discovered while performing a play in hermosa uh and when he started to sort of climb up that ladder getting more and more tv and movie roles he was often compared to james dean uh something that i don't think he really cared for well uh, i've got a quote from him that's coming up here uh, a rumor has it that parks was actually a pallbearer at lenny bruce's funeral i don't know that there's any confirmation of that but i saw that rumor floating around uh he really kind of hit the height of his fame in 1969 when he uh starred as bronson in the uh, tv series then came bronson what was so great about the tv series and the tv movie well first of all i think it really did showcase his talents as an actor speaking about being low-key but he was really speaking to sort of this sort of new um counterculture some sort of movement although um he wasn't he wasn't but then Kim Bronson was really trying to reach a different kind of audience at that time this audience was really new to people and that was like really really young people there was actually there's always been the 18 to 49 demographic but Bronson was really trying to reach out to the 10 to 31 demographic um, which is really interesting and sort of was then sort of an untouched course sort of number and I mean the 10 to 18 years uh, so 
He was really at his peak during 1969 and 1970. Um, so as I said, the series showcased his musical talent. So I was actually shocked to read that he released four records between 1969 and 1970. Four full albums. What? Yep. what? Yes. Oh my gosh, he's like the Beatles. Yes. Wow. So he, the albums are called Closing the Gap, Long Lonesome Highway, which you probably rec- recognize from then Kim Bronson, Lost and Found, and Blue. Um, the song Long Lonesome Highway was featured on then Kim Bronson, and it was a top 20 hit. Um, and it, that album charted uh, for more than five weeks on the Billboard's Hot 100. He actually made, I thought this was interesting, he made his Los Angeles concert debut in May of 1970. And he got pretty good critical acclaim for it. He was considered a very serious and sensitive singer. What I thought was really neat about it was his lead guitarist had actually worked and toured with Elvis. So he was using these really amazing musicians um, in his act. Wow. He uh, he also, during that performance, so his L.A. debut, I think, was in 1970 in May. I think I said that. Uh, he covered... Um, the Hank Williams song, I Can't Help It. I, I did read, though, that the major criticism was, you know, he's a very soft-spoken guy. He's actually a very soft-spoken singer. So when he would do a lot of covers and stuff, sometimes his range, uh, I guess, critics felt sort of held him back. Um, now, I haven't heard these covers, so I don't know. He then had two more records coming out. He probably had more, but I could find two more. In 1981, he released an album called You Don't Know Me. And in 1998, he released an album called Cool and Soup, which I think... Uh, was more jazz infused than sort of the uh, folk country stuff he was normally doing at that point. Um, like I said, he got a lot of comparisons to James Dean uh, during the Bronson era. I actually saw um, a newspaper headline that said something to the effect of, is James Dean still alive or is Bronson the new James Dean? You know, something like that. So um, it was it was all over the press and he just didn't care for it. Uh, he He felt that... James Dean had a reputation for being kind of cantankerous and difficult, and he felt like the association would um, give him that reputation, which he did have to a certain extent, and we will talk about that in a second. But he did have some power on Bronson. He actually had the power over his uh, character dialogue, and he often rewrote lines because he wanted it to uh, have a certain flow to it, and he wanted the character to speak a certain way. So he did have some power on that show. Um, but uh, I was surprised to read Parks didn't actually like working in television too much. Um, he felt that TV was more about being a personality than being an actor and he kind of felt like the problems that would come up during the shows that he worked on would have to be resolved in an hour and he just didn't feel like that was very real to life uh so he was a little frustrated i think creatively with television even though that's where i think he found a lot of his early fame he hit a road bump in his career in the late 60s uh it's supposedly because of a contractual dispute with universal uh for something he did right before bronson um and at first when I read about that, people were, I said supposedly, but Parks had talked about it in an interview he did in 1970. He said, Universal owed me money and put me on uh, suspension. I went to Mexico and chopped wood for a living. Then the article goes on to say, Universal executives eventually called and told him if he would do a TV movie for them, they would let him out of his contract. Then he said, uh, Park said, but when someone says to you, you're trouble, whether it's true or not, dot, dot, dot. So I think that was the, like the James Dean thing. He, I think he felt like people thought he was difficult, and I don't think he saw himself as difficult. So even though he was at the peak of his uh, career, I would say artistically and probably the height of his fame, I read just a little clipping. I've never seen this really anywhere else. Parks' nine-year-old daughter was killed in a car crash in 1971. Um, it was just one article in the LA Times that I saw. So she was actually riding her bike across the road in a car, didn't see her, and they hit her in the 
they killed her. Um, and he had a wife that committed suicide as well. He found work again in 1973. He did a movie called Between Friends. He also did some TV like Owen uh, Marshall Counselor at Law. I think he did a medical center. And then in 1974, he appeared in the TV movie Can Ellen Be Saved, where he plays a con artist cult leader. He's only in a couple of scenes in that, but he's really good. Um, and he got a lot of note for that film as well. Uh, in 1986, he got one directing credit for The Return of Josie Wales, which I haven't seen. I don't know if either one of you are familiar with that film. I hadn't even heard of it. Um, he also starred in that movie. Parks would end up appearing in over 100 films, TV shows, and telefilms throughout his career, which ran about six decades. Um, he said in an interview, though, that he didn't really understand the craft of acting until he was uh, well into his 40s. Um, so, you know, later on, he would work with directors like Quentin Tarantino and Kevin Smith. And um, Kevin Smith uh, described Michael Parks like this, quote, He's porn for actors. If you like actors and you discover Michael Parks in a scene and you have never seen him before, your brain explodes. He will take a page of dialogue and deliver it in a different way than anybody else. End quote. I absolutely agree with that, too. Needless to say, Kevin Smith considered Parks to be one of the greatest character actors ever. And because of, like I said, Smith and Tarantino, Parks enjoyed a late career renaissance. Um, Red State and Tusk uh, were movies he made with Smith. And, of course, Kill Bill and From Dust Till Dawn uh, were two things I know he did with Quentin Tarantino. He also worked with David Lynch right on Twin Peaks um, got some note for that uh, Parks passed away in uh, 2017 at the age of 77 and Kevin Smith is apparently working on a documentary on him so I'm looking forward to that that'll probably be the best thing Kevin Smith's done in like 30 years so yeah, possibly. Yeah, no offense yeah. I don't know I haven't seen Red State I have read that Michael Parks is absolutely stunning in it and I, hmm. I believe that and he was in Kill Bill he plays a couple different characters right I think in Kill Bill 1 he's like a sheriff or something and in Kill Bill 2 he's that drug dealer pimp guy it took me the entire scene to realize that it was him in that character mm. so even though i was familiar with parks he was so immersed in that role that it was like it melted my brain when i realized what i was looking at he's so good he just submerges himself into these characters and he was a very important actor i think and one that we call a character actor even though he starred in some things but and i think character actor is a fine term i use it all the time but sometimes i think it downplays the talent of an actor, um, if they're not considered a leading man somehow, that somehow diminishes their abilities. And, and I don't want anybody to look back on Michael Parks and feel that. So I think it's great that Kevin Smith is doing this documentary, and I'm really, really excited to talk about these movies. So, Dan, do you want to talk about Escape from Bogan County? Sunday at noon, Burt Reynolds and Raquel Welsh. They've got the guns, guts, and grit. 100 rifles. You know you're trouble, big man. You're dumb. Then at two, Jacqueline Smith held hostage by her husband's reign of terror, escaped from Bogan County. And at four, Shirley MacLaine and Dean Martin rewrite the book of love in All in a Night's Work. There's something for everyone beginning at noon. Sunday on KPLR-TV, Channel 11. The, the one thing with Escape from Bogan County is it shifts its focus a lot, so I'm going to try to keep online uh, uh, on on the plot as much as I can and then I'll, I'll stop at a sweet point so we begin the movie with the great song playing and I forget the lyrics but there I think about a woman making her own way or something like that you see Jacqueline Smith and she's Maggie Bowman. She's in Houston. And you see her going into a modeling agency, an employment agency, and she's going to make her own way. She's going to do it. Meanwhile, we see a very sort of Jock Ewing-esque sort of gentleman driving along a desert road. A cop pulls up behind him and then passes him and they kind of wave at each other. And you're thinking, hmm, what's going on? Jacqueline Smith. Oh, well, uh, uh, Maggie. Sorry. I'm going to keep calling her 
Jack and Smith, uh, Maggie uh, goes into her hotel room and she discovers Fred Willard and some kind of gross fat guy in there taking all of her clothes. And in there is the Jock Ewing guy, Ambler Bowman. Ambler Bowman is her husband. He's much older than she is. And they have kind of this discussion about um, her leaving him and leaving Bogan County, where he lives, and he has a huge ranch and such. And um, they kind of... You could tell that their relationship is strained, but she's willing to head back. She's willing to give it another try. And they kiss a bit, and uh, Ambler tries to... Slipper little tongue, I think, but Maggie is like, no, not right now. That's not happening right now. But you see them the next day, and they're back at their uh, ranch, and um, uh, Ms. Jacqueline Smith is making up a fried egg. Sweetheart? Hmm? Did you miss me when I was in Houston? With all those court costs and lawyer fees, and you making such a fuss, I didn't have time to miss you, sugar. Well, I miss you. Even when I was mad at you, I missed you. You got no cause to be mad at me. Well, no. Just because my man's off drunk, coming home at five in the morning, playing around on me, he's mad. You can't change a man's ways, No point in trying. But I missed you. I always missed you. You always was the most beautiful girl in Bowling Like before, remember? You'd come home right in the middle of the day, just so we'd have a little time alone. Yeah. I won't ever leave you again, Ambler. It's gonna be good between us. I won't ever leave you again. That's my good baby. I won't let you get away again, maybe. Dun dun dun. And that's the end of the movie. They lived happily ever after. No, I'm Aww. kidding. No one's escaped from Bogan County. Oh, isn't that too bad? Uh, it's not escape from Boogans County, by the way. It's Bogan <laughs> County. I wish it was Boogans County. That would be the best. Oh, my God. <laughs> Wouldn't that be awesome? So uh, Maggie uh, Maggie heads out into uh, Bogan County, which is kind of a really small Texas. Uh, I don't know. It's a county. It's like it's a street and a ranch, basically. And she goes to do some uh, – go to the goes to the bank, but she discovers her account is closed. She goes to a local store, which is run by Mr. Fred Willard, and he is eating a sandwich and is hilarious as always. And he, there's no more – she doesn't have an account there anymore. And it's kind of a little strange to her because she's – wanting to try to continue her life with Ambler, but as you heard, he sleeps around, and she was trying to get a divorce from him, and eh, things are a little gamey. And they have a big, um, oh, here, here, what kind of guy is Ambler? He he likes going deer hunting. Now, that's a, that's a good or a bad. It, it depends on where you live and what you, what you eat and that kind of thing. But he's one of those guys who goes deer hunting, sitting in a helicopter with a high-powered rifle. So you can, you know... Hey, the deer, they got a, yeah, that's, so that's the kind of guy he is. Good sport. Yeah, it's, it's really like you watch, you watch this scene and you're like, are you kidding me? Um, but, and they, they throw, um, I thought it was a deer roast, but it looks like a pig roast. They throw some huge party and everyone in the county seems to be there. And, and Maggie is there trying to be sort of the perfect wife. Ambler is there and he's drunk and he's kind of flirting with a very young, very scared looking gal. And, 
um, the the kind of gross guy who was with Fred Willard in the hotel earlier is kind of really kind of leching on Maggie. And the whole party ends with Maggie walking in a room and discovering Ambler in bed with this young gal. And Maggie says enough of this, and she escapes from Bogan County again. But this time, he sent Texas Rangers after her. And finally, over a half hour into the movie, Mr. Michael Parks playing Jack Kern, Texas Ranger basically arrests her, puts her in handcuffs, and is driving her back to Bogan County. But while they're driving back, it's not it's 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 not an unpleasant thing. It's more like a a less um kind of um a rough version of like a midnight run or something. It's like the two of them they start chatting about um Mr. Kern. Hey, I'm your Texas Ranger. I never met a Texas Ranger before. Yeah. Well I couldn't sing, that's why I'm a Texas Ranger. I want to be a country singer. I never could keep the tune. You play an instrument? Well, you can't call it that, I don't think. I just started playing last week. I thought it was better late than ever. Angel? No, not me. <laughs> Guitar. <laughs> Are you teaching yourself? Yeah, you might call it that. I bet you play good. No, I don't. I don't play good at all. Sound like a dog on a barbed wire fence. You got it with you? Oh, yes, back then. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's in the back. Yeah. I would have played piano, but you know, <laughs> can't carry a piano around. Well, <laughs> maybe you can uh, play me a tune for the past six, honey. Yeah, I'll, I'll play you a tune. We'll get back there. I'll play you a tune, I promise. Emma Bowman would hang me if you thought he could get away with it. You know, she makes a lot of noises, I'm realizing. <laughs> she, she does, she does. Uh, and and they, they return her to um, uh, Bogan County, and the judge, who is not very nice, Judge Martin, places her under arrest and throws her in jail. It's, it's just their bogus charges, and it's nonsense, and she's very unhappy about it, but she's thrown in jail, and... So she's in jail, and slowly as this sort of mock trial is going on, um, Mr. Parks, Jack Kern, is, is kind of watching it going, okay, what's going on here? And we, we, we kind of learn, uh, due to the divorce that she filed, uh, the state attorney general has sent Henry Gibson down to check it out. Henry Gibson plays Abe Rand, and he basically has learned that uh, our Ambler Bowman is sort of, not quite, but like the king of Bogan County. He runs it. He's in charge of all of it. Um, Maggie is his trophy wife, who he married when she was very young, and he doesn't want to, you know, her leaving is, is a sort of spite onto his character, so he has to bring her back, and he has to throw her in jail if necessary, and he has everyone under his thumb, and all the people in the town kowtow to him, and they're not very happy, but no one will speak out, no one will say anything. But now, Michael Parks is in town. And Michael Parks is going to do two things. One, he's going to start investigating what's going on and try to kick Ambler Bowman's ass. And two, and I'll stop my synopsis here, he does visit Miss Jacqueline Smith in jail and sings her a song. How you doing? I told you I'd sing for you. All this you asked for. I wrote it, I just hope I can remember it. 
hope this stays the key. I hope you like it. Sun slides up the mountain top. Million stars appear. I'm due back tomorrow, and I ought to get moving. But long, I like it here. I like it here. Not a soul for miles around. The mountain air so clean. Moon's throwing shadows. I ought to get moving. But long, I like it here. I like it here. High country, low country folks and trees. My country, no country feels more like home to me. So I loved to listen to a lot of Michael Parks while I was putting this podcast together. And of all the songs I heard, and I loved so many of them, that one has to be my favorite. It's so sweet. I like it here, yeah. It's beautiful. It's a sweet one. And that's... And, and so what what happens from that point on when, when you sing a song to a woman who's falsely accused of something and in jail at that point, you're going to kick some ass. And so the rest of the movie becomes, can he help Jacqueline Smith, Maggie Bowman, and in fact anyone else, maybe even himself, escape from Bogan <laughs> County? You know, he didn't even, it wasn't even from this moment that he started kicking ass. He went in before to visit her. Remember, he beat yeah, up the yeah. guard. True, <laughs> like, yes. I'm going to sing to her. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he does. He does. He does. Yeah. It was awesome. And he's and like, it's he, great. He, it's great. Well, he, he he kicks the ass of this this little scrubby um, deputy guy, and then as he's singing to her, like the sheriff and the deputy are all like poised with guns outside the jail, like they're gonna like gonna get in a shootout. But they're like, he's singing to her. <laughs> What's going on? <laughs> he's winning with love, guys. Uh, winning with love. That's that's he's the Bronson attitude. Yes. <laughs> so I'm guessing neither none of us have seen Escape from Bogan County. Is that correct? Before this, that is correct. correct. Okay, so I'll go first this time. So I really enjoyed this. Um, this movie has been on my radar for a while because when I wrote um, "Are You in the House Alone?" when I co-wrote it, um, I did an article on uh, Nightmare in Badham County. And that article ended up becoming about sort of the mixture that TV movies did with exploitation and women in prison films. And although this isn't technically a woman in prison film, except we have a, a woman in jail, um, it, it kind of came across uh, my radar. So I was like, this looks really amazing. And I would like to see this very much. And when Michael Parks died, someone contacted me and they were asking me if I had a copy of this film because they were doing a retrospective on him. And this was a really tough film to find. And I, of course, didn't have a copy of it. And um, it was a lot of guesswork and how good it was or what was happening in it. But then it finally appeared and I sat down. And what I think is so interesting about Escape from Bogan County, I enjoyed it a lot. I don't think it's perfect. Um, I was surprised that Michael Parks is really only in the second half of it. That was a little bit of a disappointment. But it really feels like a legitimate exploitation film. Like it really, it doesn't necessarily feel like a TV movie to me, except for those dissolves where they go to commercial and the screen turns black and white. And it's obvious that they're merging into a commercial. But um and it doesn't obviously have nudity or swearing, but it's got a feel to it that has a kind of a grindhousey feel that I really liked. Um, aesthetically, it's a really intriguing film. Um, I think it's not perfect because 
it does kind of switch gears. And because I think maybe the tone, I don't know that it keeps the right tone through the whole film, but I do think it's, it's really enjoyable and I'm glad I finally got to see it. And I thought Parks was really good. I was really surprised to see Fred Willard in it. Um, there was some really interesting hashtag me too stuff happening in this one. The, there's this overweight guy that works for Bowman and he just gets drunk at that party and he's like, I'm going to have Maggie tonight. And he just says it like it's a thing. Like I just say, I want to, and it's going to happen. He's, he's got a strange shape. That guy, you know what? That guy died kind of young. He's a, he was a really good actor. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, so I'm gonna, but he is, he was, he was obviously morbidly obese and, and he played characters like that sometimes, um, because of his size. Sometimes he didn't. Sometimes he just played like the buddy or whatever. But, but yeah, the, I think that he has a sleazy quality to him because of how he looks. And a lot of the actors do. That bald guy, was he the sheriff? Oh, the sheriff. Yep. Oh, yes. Uh, John Quaid, Sheriff Mason. I love that actor, but he also looks just like a sleazeball. You know what I mean? He just stereotypically (laughs) fits that mold. And it's unfortunate for him, but he's so good in every part he plays. But, and of course, I think it's Mitch Ryan is the actor who plays Bowman, um, from Dark and Gray. Mm -hmm. And he, he always looked 55, apparently. I mean, there's just no way around it. But anyway, yeah, yeah, I thought it was good. I thought Jacqueline Smith was pretty good in it. It was really her first um, big role in terms of TV movies. It was her first TV movie. Um, And uh, it was a lot of fun. Um, Dan, what did you think of it? I I agree with you uh, regarding the the sort of – the tone is is slightly strange because it does begin with a sort of a song, one of those songs that's kind of telling you, like – um, I, I forget what the lyrics are, but there are a lot of lyrics like, um, uh, you know, like, uh, you know, will I find my place and things like that. You know, when it's really it's about a woman trying to escape from a horrible marriage. And, you know, it's like maybe she should find her place. Maybe the song shouldn't question that. But um, it, it, yeah, it sort of starts off like she, it's one thing, then it becomes something else. With one of my favorite moments being where you see um, she's frying one egg. And he comes up behind her. And she goes, oh, don't do that. I'll mess up the eggs. And I thought, that's one egg, dear. I'm, <laughs> I think your large husband is probably going to need more than that. But it does keep sort of yeah shifting um, its tone. Uh, and so, like, for the first 35 minutes or so, uh, um, up until uh, maybe the first 40 minutes, up until she's in the court and she gets put in the jail, it seems like it's about her. But then once she's put in jail, it becomes more about um, uh, uh, Michael Parks and some, somewhat Henry Gibson and trying to stop Ambler. And then it kind of becomes about her a little bit later, but not much. And then it's even weirder in that for the last like 10 minutes or so, it becomes this almost uh, this sort of elegy about Ambler where there's a lot of shots right. of him standing in the horizon. As the music is playing, you're thinking, where are we now? What is this doing? And I, I would love to know why, because when I, I knew nothing about this, so when, I, when it started and I saw her and I saw these people come and get her, I thought, okay, this is going to be like, um, well, my first thought was like, a, but this, this is overselling it, but like a human experiments kind of thing where you get a woman going into a town or something. But then when they bring her back, it's like, okay, oh, there's something else going on here. But it never quite—it's—it's it's a little—it's a bit of a weird movie because it never quite goes exactly where you think it's going to go, most of the time. But then sometimes it does. I mean, like Escape from Bogan County. She escapes from Bogan County three times in the movie, 
and and you hope the third time's a charm. I did I did like this quite a bit. That although I thought it was dumb the first time I saw it, but then I understood it. In that, um, and this is kind of near the end, she escapes a third time, and she's hiding out at a motel. And um, Michael Parks and Henry Gibson are kind of like going after Bowman now, and they kind of got her. But she makes a phone call to Henry Gibson's office, and it's being tapped by one of Bowman's people. And so Bowman goes after Maggie. And when I saw that, I thought, oh, Maggie, you just needed to wait like another day. Did you really need to make this phone call? But it's great because Ambler says something like, oh, Maggie, your impatience has always been your downfall. It's like, ha-ha! I liked it. I thought, actually, that I would have preferred it if it were in a 90-minute time slot or about 70 to 75 yeah. minutes because I think it goes on yeah. a little too long. But there, there are enough moments because there's a whole lot of setup, and then once she gets returned, it becomes kind of more like, you know, now it's about her in the jail. Now it's about um, the judge's daughter. Now it's about you know getting chased by helicopters now you know and it, it becomes a little sort of blocky i don't know if that's quite right the the white right word but it becomes a little strange in the second half not bad and then when they actually sort of uh, and it's weird too because that thing she does where she calls him and she shouldn't have actually leads to her sort of leading the parade of people who turn bowman in more or less that's so right. the kind of thing you think she does which is dumb which bowman says oh, I knew you'd do that, actually gets him in the end. And so it's, it's an interesting movie. I, um, I didn't love it, but I, I, quite, I quite liked it. And when Michael Park shows up as the Texas Ranger, you're like, hooray, there's our hero. You can tell he's the hero right there. Oh, and plus, if you're going to put Jacqueline Smith in a jail cell, put her in one uh, where you can walk down either side of the cell, which is great because normally they're up yes, against right. the wall. But in this one, she's in like a hallway. So it's like you get Michael Parks on one side, you get Mitch Ryan on the other, and they're kind of leering at one another across Jacqueline Smith through the cell. And it's it's fun. I, I liked it. I will be honest, um, by the end, a few of the songs were starting to get to me. Um, it's, it's a sort of soft rock, twangy, mid-70s country kind of thing that I can t- take or leave on some days. But, um, but uh, I think overall... I think it's it's definitely worth a viewing. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Nate, what did you think of it? Oh, I liked it. Um, I thought it was uh, interesting. It it's interesting to me, basically how you know the the women are kind of treated in this county, and I felt like the judge's daughter had become so complacent in it that even she at first doesn't even seem to be on Maggie's side. That's right. You know, she's sort of like, well, you really hurt yes, Ambler when you left. Like, it's all, like, Maggie's fault. And like Maggie says, nobody asks, like, how she felt. You know, they're all, like, concerned about Ambler this and Ambler that, but he rules that town with an iron fist, and, you know, they all are uh, pretty much afraid of him. I found it uh, – I, I think I would have preferred, I guess, uh, a finale that was maybe a little more exciting um, I mean, I like where they went with it. I, I was totally fine with it. But you know me, I'm a I'm a slasher movie fan at heart, and just the idea of like Jacqueline Smith and him having a final showdown or something. I mean, I know it's cliche, but I just love that. I love that kind of cliche. So I would have loved <laughs> to have seen that, but that's not exactly where this went. And um, are we going to spoil this? Because I really want to talk about something at the very end. Yeah, go for it. Yeah. Okay, well, at the after the courtroom uh, battle, 
Um, you know, it, basically, Ambler's life is going to be over because all these people testify against him. Um, so he ends up pulling a warden from Shawshank Redemption move, and he uh, <laughs> decides to shoot himself. And so basically it ends with him committing suicide. And then I just loved this eulogy at the end of the movie where this uh, pastor's going, yes. Ambler's just yeah. such a good person. And, you know, now all these liberals are coming in and, That's and right. this or that. And I'm yeah, like, traitors. Why yeah, are you trying yeah. to make this funeral political? I mean, mm-hmm. it's just so ridiculous mm-hmm. to me. I'm like, and Ambler was not a good guy whatsoever. I would wonder because Jacqueline Smith uh, or Maggie says several times in this movie that um, things used to be good between them. So I'll, I kind of wonder what they were like, you know, back in there in the good times before yeah. Ambler went completely crazy uh, or power hungry or, or whatever you want to call it. But, yeah, I'll, I'll often one uh, I kind of wonder when I was watching it, you know, how, how things used to be, because obviously we see it now when their marriage is pretty much done. I mean, he's only keeping her around, I think, for a few reasons. One, I think that he looks at her as his property. So I think that he doesn't want her to leave. Like, if anything, he would leave her, but she's not going to leave him uh, because I think he's got that, you know, big ego uh, that he's got going on. Um, so yeah, I think that, um, it, that's like part of it. And then also she's got all this information on him, so he can't let her leave. So it's not like, I don't even know that he even loves her anymore. It's just sort of, um, he's just kind of keeping her trapped. Like in that clip you played, I mean, they're having like an all right conversation and she's even mentioning how much she missed him and stuff. But you know, I don't know. He just seems to be more focused on how pretty she is. It was also kind of a game, though, because, like, she said all those things, but then five minutes later, she was trying to get to the bank and withdraw her petty cash. And so I think he understood that it was going to be back and forth for a while. So I agree that it was it was about, like, the information that she had was a thing that he just couldn't have get outside of the county, although it had because they were she was on the news. Yeah. And so, like, went to somebody, right? Like the radio reporter. Yeah. Yeah, so, like, there was a general idea that something was happening there, and he was able to keep it at bay, I guess, if it looked like their marriage was okay. But um, but I kind of feel like when she was saying all that stuff, I love you, Ambler, I love you so much, that he was he kind of knew at the same time that they were almost, like, talking around what they really wanted to say. Okay, see, I I guess, and, and that makes more sense now, but I, I, for some reason I thought that when she got back she was going to try to just – make it work with him uh, when I first watched it. But, I mean, yeah, like you said, she does go to the bank and stuff afterwards, and he's frozen her out, so. Yeah, she doesn't even wait like an hour. She's like, bye, Ambler. And then she's like, the car takes off. She's like, she's ready. <laughs> oh, I was going to say, do you love the uh, license plates? What is it, like AB1 or AB, like Ewing, That's the right. Ewing license plates <laughs> with the Ewing 4, I, Ewing 5? I like when she escaped the second time and she drives all night and they arrest her and they put mm-hmm. her in jail and she wears that dress for like days. And I love that they didn't try to like put her in any, they didn't glamorize that part at all. They like, I mean, she looked beautiful, mm-hmm. obviously she's Jacqueline Smith but like she uh, by the end of that stay in that dress I was like she is stank guys 
And like, you know, and I kind of <laughs> yeah. like that there's like a realism slightly there, not completely in this film, but there is this kind of, that's why it kind of felt like a true blue exploitation movie. Cause those movies are gritty, you know? And like, um, yes. there's, there's a layer of grime to them. And this movie has a layer of grime to it. That made me feel like it could have been a theatrical had they like sort of figured out a way around the dissolves to the commercial and maybe added in a little bit more salacious stuff. But, um, but it had this mm-hmm. kind of theatrical feel to it, which I really liked. Yeah, and I like I like the 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 backstory for Maggie when when she tells it where it's like what what is it her she she says like she'd never been to a restaurant before or something and 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 Ambler Ambler took a liking to her and she said my parents just gave me to him and it's like oh gross where are her parents shouldn't are they both dead i'm did ambler have them killed yeah that know. might be yeah you know what she has like it's interesting because uh i kind of forgotten about the friend until nate brought her up but she um she comes through in the end but yeah she really is defending ambler and then maggie actually does say what nate said that like why doesn't anybody ask how i'm doing you know and that was supposed mm-hmm. to be her best friend in this film and and she won't even talk to henry gibson like he tries to ask her questions and just being seen with him gets her in more trouble, you know? And so it's like, it's like she can't win. She can't win. She's stuck. And it's really frustrating, you know, to watch that. When the uh, friend, uh, Emily, is it Emily? Is that, what's her name? That's her name, uh, Emily. No, no, what? Is is it Emily? Okay. When she, because you see her in that first scene and she's completely unsympathetic. But then when she hears, um, uh, Maggie sort of crying and yelling at Ambler because he's not going to let her go. At that moment, she's like to, to Mr. Parks, like, what's going on? What's happening? To, my my father did what? And suddenly she and uh, she kind of breaks down and that's what gets the ball rolling. That's that's what sets everything sort of the, the final act in into play. And it's the first time I watched it, I was okay with that. The second time, I must have been paying more attention because I wasn't as convinced by Emily that time. I thought, why does she care now? They don't explore her change of heart that deeply. It just sort of, but I mean, I guess Maggie sort of, because mm-hmm. she does come around a little when Maggie's like, nobody ever asks how I'm doing. And I think she kind of realizes True. that she's mm-hmm. falling into that sort of uh, collective hysteria that the rest of the town is living under. Right. So, but mm-hmm. they don't, but they don't, her turnaround is kind of like not abrupt, but maybe not completely believable either. I, I did, did you guys did you guys catch this moment? I, I didn't fully understand. What, I just have a note written here, and I don't fully understand what it was. They he walks uh, Maggie and Jack walk into the courthouse, and they step in this ho- courthouse. And there, you know, there are, there's a hallway or two. There's some doors. There's a huge staircase. They step in. He looks around, and she goes, "There are the stairs." Did you hear that part? And, like, he can't see this enormous... Because I, I wrote that down. There's the stairs. And I thought, why, do, why did, you, did you think he is like Texas Rangers? They don't use stairs. They're just... They're all like one-story yeah. kind of guys or did, something. I, did she go, oh, 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 <laughs> She probably did. I didn't actually notice that until the yeah, clip I started didn't, playing. I didn't either. That was kind of like a thing she did there, the character thing that was kind of funny to me. Mm-hmm. Um but she looks beautiful doing it. Yes. Can I, can I ask, would everyone listening please call 555-2224? It's a number for something in the movie. Jacqueline Smith might be on the other end. Oh, that'd be great. Give it a try. Tomorrow, Jacqueline Smith is doing a Ask Me Anything on Twitter. And I'm really upset oh, wow. that she's doing it because I would have asked her about this movie. Oh, yeah. Honestly, Dan, I don't know that there's a whole lot more to say about Escape from Bogan County. 
Yeah. <laughs> I, 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 yeah, I don't, I don't think so either. I, th- I think the, um, the, the, it's, it's an interesting movie. I think the strangeness in tones, almost like, almost like it was like a round robin kind of writing thing where it was like a one writing team did 10 or 15 minutes and then another one took over yeah. or something like that. That's kind of how, and like the, the, like the third or fourth writing team didn't realize that it was supposed to be about Maggie. So they made it more about Ambler and stuff like that. But apart from that, yeah, there really isn't a whole lot to talk about. I will say something Uh, that I really appreciated was that Parks and Smith have a really interesting, I don't even know if you call it a love affair because you don't really ever see them together like that in a way. But but their relationship mm -hmm, mm -hmm. feels really organic and sweet. And I really like when he shows up, you just see the bright light coming. You know what I mean? You're like, there's a dark tunnel still for Maggie, but you can kind of see where it might end. And so um, he's just that light and it's great. And and through the whole film, like he's like the only guy who's not a sleazebag. You know what I mean? Yes, and he doesn't he doesn't sweat as much as everyone no, else. No, he know looks that great. Means. He's got that great hair. He's a country singer. He makes that joke about he wanted to play piano, mm. but you can't carry a piano with you. And she laughed. Yeah, exactly. He's just so charming. Yeah. And like, uh, but but like he, um, it's just a really sweet relationship, and I like that. I like that it's not this like let's make out and like she's a woman who needs saving, mm-hmm. and so let's you know, and they have this big moment where they kiss and it's super passionate or whatever. It just feels like a really sweet beginning of what could be a really lovely relationship, and I kind of really like that aspect yeah. of the film as well. Me, me too. I like the uh, that the the scene with them in the car. You know they're going somewhere that's going to be unpleasant for her, but it's a, it's a nice scene. And then when they get there and he's sitting there watching this sort of kangaroo court going on, you could see him gradually thinking like, okay, this is baloney. This is there's something going on. And I I like the thought too that in Bogan County. Ambler Bowman is king, as it were. But this Texas Ranger from Austin or wherever is sitting there going, Who's this guy? What's he doing here? What's going on? This 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 won't stand. I'm calling in Walker. He yeah. doesn't call in Walker. Walker, Texas that Ranger, that's great. right. Let's do it. Let's do it. He also <laughs> sings, so that's good. Walker and Kern. That's right. That was the oh, that was the right. spin off yes. that nobody saw. <laughs> Yeah, it is kind of interesting Except when you yeah. when you think about how little role Ambler actually had, just even in a state. Yes. And but it was so heavy where mm-hmm. he was, even though it was just like a one horse town, that it was impossible mm-hmm. for anybody in that town to have any kind of f- personal freedom. You know, it was such yeah. a stranglehold. But just yeah. right outside the county, there's potential, right? Mm-hmm. So it's kind of interesting. Yeah, it doesn't he doesn't have a far reach, but his reach is strong where he has it. Yes. And he was yeah, great yeah. in the part. I thought yeah. Ryan was really good. He, he is. He is, and he's still convincing near the end when everything is falling apart around him, and he's just like people are coming up to him and like uh, you know, and and like um, Maggie says something something along the lines of like you know, I'm gonna go to the whoever and I'm gonna tell him all about you. Who cares? That don't mean nothing to me. Whatever. You know, he's just got this constant thing of like, I'm, I can, I can rule this county from jail as well as I can from my home, kind of thing. And he's just got this constant, even though he shoots himself at the yeah, end. But you know, you gotta keep stiff, stiff upper lip. Yeah, that was a really interesting um, thing that he did because I'm, I'm certainly not heartbroken over his death, but I think at the end, when he's like watching the horizon, you know, and he's like, and it's like yes. that beautiful like shot from far away and, and he's just standing there and you just know this mm-hmm. is the last time he's ever going to see it. It's effective. You know, it works. Yes. It really works. Yeah. Cause you get, 
you get the feeling that when you see him driving, he's driving around his place for the last time because he's made his decision. And um, he's a super jerk, but the movie plays it, gives him that bit of uh, sympathy, that bit of um, maybe uh, maybe there'll be a maybe there was a prequel that shows how he became this this jerk. Yeah, you know when Nate was saying that he wanted to see Ambler's relationship with Maggie before the film, it was like a before the Mm -hmm. credits, not an after the credits. Yes, yes, yes. (laughs) Dallas, the early years. Yeah, so we're looking for it. Um, But I kind of think that that's kind of all we have. It's a very simple film. Um, If you can catch it, see it, especially if you like exploitation. I think it fits really well in that genre. Um, But I think we're done unless you guys have anything to say. Nate, do you have anything you want to add? Just that I like seeing Dr. Klopek in this movie. He's from the Burbs, Henry Gibson. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there was a lot of really familiar actors. I'll tell you, when I saw Fred Willard, though, I was like, is that Fred Willard? <laughs> yes, and the way the the way he eats a sandwich oh, in the funny. store he's in is just so – he's sweaty, and he's eating the sandwich, and it's just like barely going in his mouth. Yeah. And it's like, that is the man who made me laugh so much in Best in Show. With, with the, so, with the exception go. of Pat Hingle, who plays the judge, I kind of feel like the men of Bogan County are slim pickings. Uh, is that a is that oh yeah? <laughs> Only because I like I think Pat Hingle's a nice guy. I think he got caught Agreed. up and he ends up being in it. But like, yes. but it's slim pickings. The men in Bogan County. I think the women are yeah. pretty decent. I think the men have a lot of problems. Yeah. Oh, one thing I wanted to point out real quick. Something you were talking about, and I don't remember what it was, Dan. But it made me think of what I think. And one last thing that is so interesting about um, Escape from Bogan County is that, as we all know, and I talk about all the time, TV movies are really targeted towards women. So you were talking about you were talking about how like the first part of the film is really about her being in this really dead end marriage and stuck and it's abusive and it's scary. And that's something that plays to the women, but they put it in a sort of aesthetic. I keep using that word. I can't think of a better word for it that would play towards a male audience and that being like a exploitation film. Right. So it's an interesting marriage of trying to find a place for those two audiences to meet. And TV movies did that a lot, but this is one where I think, uh, it really shows, although I don't know that I fully recognize it till Dan started talking about the marriage and stuff, but it's something to think about when you watch this movie. So it's trying to cross all these different sort of demographics. Um, this is not completely successful at any of them, but it's a really strong attempt to do that. It, yeah. And, and it does actually have the, the, the helicopter chase scene is almost could have been out of a bond That's maybe right. not a bond film but maybe like a bond rip That's off right, yeah because this helic this helicopter is going nuts all over the car and there's one point where like the helicopter like tilts almost like the propeller is like going against the ground yeah. which is like that I don't maybe that's the easiest thing to do with a helicopter, but that looks crazy to me. That looks like I forget. Isn't there a movie where like someone they're like zombies or something, and someone tilts a helicopter and like the blade is spinning and cuts all the bodies in half or something? Is that the one Hugo Stiglitz Nightmare City? Is that Nightmare City? It could be. I forget. There, there's a movie, yeah, where like there's a helicopter and like zombies or something are coming towards it, and the helicopter tilts like it does in this movie, and the propeller almost like hits the ground, but it cuts all the Ooh. people in half. Uh, I will say, Jacqueline Smith does not get cut in half. No, thank God. Uh, there's a there's a stunt in Capricorn One. I don't know if you're the one of you seen that by Peter Himes, and um, it's really yeah, good. Yeah. But there's a there's a helicopter chasing it with two helicopters. And at the time it was considered one of the most ambitious stunts ever photographed. And that's when the helicopter, what do you call that part? The, like the stand part where the helicopter lands on the legs. 
the legs of the helicopter. I'm sure the stand part. It's the stand part. Yeah, I don't know what the technical term. We all know what they are. Yeah, it's where it's where you stand on it, like when you're trying to escape and you stand on it, you know, and you're outside the thing. Yeah, yeah. So that that leg of the helicopter touches the leg of the second helicopter, and on purpose. And and it was one of it's one of the most ambitious and mind-boggling stunts I've ever seen. And it's just a moment, but it was so dangerous Mm -hmm. to do it, and they fucking did it you know and it's amazing and that's a great yeah, film yeah. anyway but like that was one of the standout moments of that film but mm. anyway mm. um so mm. there's helicopters there's dead deer there's mitch ryan there's michael park's <laughs> hair there's some singing jacqueline smith looks stunning she's pretty good in it um i think her her acting improves in other tv movies later and we will do a jacqueline double because there's one very amazing film i want to talk about that she's in but um so we recommend it and let me just do the uh, background real quick. I will tell you that this aired on October 7th, 1977 on CBS. This was Jacqueline Smith's first telephone, as I said. It was shot during the hiatus of the first season of Charlie's Angels, which, you know, went out of the gate just so fast and huge. Um, it was shot in a place called Florence, Arizona. Here is a list of some other movies shot in Florence, Arizona. They are The Gauntlet, which is interesting because that's a Clint Eastwood movie that some of it was shot in Vegas, and there's a really neat movie theater that doesn't exist anymore, and there's a scene with Clint Eastwood outside, and you can get a really good look at the Red Rock Theater sign. Um, and I only mention that because it's really hard to find anything about the Red Rock Theater, and it was this really beautiful movie theater. Anyway, so that was part of that was shot in Florence, Arizona. Near Dark was shot there. The Trial of Billy Jack. A couple of TV movies were shot there, including Run, Simon Run from 1970, which I think starred Burt Reynolds, The Neon Empire from 1991, and something called Command 5, which is a Wings Hauser movie that just has to be the best thing ever because Wings Hauser's in it. Uh, Escape from Bogan County ran against Black Market Baby on ABC, which was a TV movie, and on NBC it was Rockford Files and Quincy, which it might be what we watched that night because my mom was huge into Rockford and Quincy. It ranked to number 34 for the week with a 19.5 slash 33, which simply means that 19.5 million homes with televisions were watching Escape from Bogan County, which represents a third of the television viewing audience. It came in at number 72 for the season. Black Market Babies uh, ranked slightly lower. It came in at number 36 that week with 18.8 slash 32, and it ended up at 88 for the season. Um, the miniseries Holocaust held the top three spots that year of the 77-78 season. It got a 39.4 slash 44 rating. Uh, all three episodes were number one, two, three. Um, it was produced uh, by an indie company called Moonlight Aries Par TV, which I'm not familiar with. So this is like almost like an independent film. Um, in an interview, Smith sort of recalled this film, and she said she put her all into it. She talked a lot about how people always kind of fell on her being a really glamorous person, and she got criticized for being too glamorous in this role. But she's pretty glamorous in it. Like her wardrobe and her hair are like perfect throughout, even when she's in that prison um, for like days. She like she's looking pretty good when she gets out. And John O'Connor of the New York Times uh, didn't care for the film. He called it titillation as usual. It was directed by Stephen Hilliard Stern, who we've talked about a little bit on this show. I didn't realize he just passed away last year, which makes me really sad. He was a Canadian filmmaker. He got a start on CBC. He worked mostly on TVMs, or I'm sorry, TV movies, and he directed titles like 
uh, Mazes and Monsters, which we just watched uh, not too long ago. Still the Beaver. Baby Sister, which is amazing. Um, Anatomy of a Seduction, which we watched last two Valentines ago. And something called The Geist, uh, I'm sorry, The Ghost of Flight 401, which is a really, really good TV movie with Ernest Borgnine. Uh, this movie had two writers. It was a female, Judith Parker, co-wrote it. She also wrote Are You in the House Alone? Uh, which, as everybody knows, I adore. And another TV movie I love called First Affair with um, uh, Melissa Sue Anderson, uh, Joel Higgins, and Loretta Swit, another favorite of mine. She won an Emmy for her writing on L.A. Law. Her first TV movie was a couple years before this called Miles to Go, and she wrote that when she was only 23. And um, she's still in the business. Uh, she's really interested in fighting ageism in the screenwriting world. That's kind of her big thing right now. Uh, the other screenwriter's name was Christopher Knopf. Christopher Knopf was an old school writer. He was much older than Judith Parker. Um, I'm not sure how they got together on this. Uh, he wrote things like um, he wrote for like the DuPont show with June Allison, as well as Zangre Theater, which we know Michael Parks appeared in. And he was the president of the WGA from 1965 to 1967. Knopf currently teaches screenwriting. He's like old guys. He's like super old, but he still teaches and he's uh, Emmy nominee himself. Um, he wrote an episode of the Alcoa Goodyear Theater and he also wrote um, a Disney Sunday movie called The Girl Who Spelled Freedom, which was also nominated for an Emmy. And that is my background for Escape from Bogan County. And we're actually being super concise and on time. So let's hit the China Lake Murders Day. You can trust him. He's a cop. The China Lake Murders. Unsettling in the best tradition of film noir, says Time magazine. Set in the Mojave Desert, this chilling mystery thriller stars Tom Skerritt of Top Gun and Alien. I don't understand why you stopped me. Your registration, please. Where are you from, Helene? We're looking for a woman in a red Mercedes convertible, about 45, blonde hair. What'd you do? Just didn't come home. Well, this one begins with a police roll call. I, I, I took it to be Los Angeles, but I wasn't sure exactly where it is, actually, now that I say that. But um, an Officer Donnelly is not there. Where is Officer Donnelly? Let me take you to China Lake. China Lake is in the middle of the desert, and a woman is pulled over, and she is a... a told by the cop the cop thinks she's drunk and he makes her go through some assorted things the nose to the thing and that you guys know what they are they're fun and and eventually what what happens is when she she gets to the point where she kind of convinces him that uh, she's not drunk so he handcuffs her hands behind her back throws her in a trunk drives her car to the middle of the desert and lets her die there and that ladies and gentlemen, is Officer Donnelly, played by Mr. Michael Parks. He's not a nice guy. And we then cut to Sheriff Sam Brody, who is the sheriff of China Lake, as he goes to a really depressing trailer park. I mean, I don't know if that's an oxymoron, but it's a really depressing trailer park where a guy has been beating his wife, and you see that Sheriff Brody is a good guy, and he's got a deputy named uh, Bobby, and... Um, uh, I, I don't quite know. There's a gal there named Cindy. Is she a secretary or a deputy? She doesn't dress like a deputy because she wears little jean, jean mini skirts. So it's like, you know, those. And it's like, I don't remember deputies dressing like that. No, I think she just works there. Yeah, she's secretary. Okay, yeah. And and um, and um uh, so so they're kind of going about their business, doing their thing. And uh, early on, sort of, a uh, guy shows up saying, hey, my wife was driving through the desert. 
and she's now gone missing. She may have met up with Officer Donnelly. Meanwhile, Officer Donnelly is at a local diner, and he starts to talk with the waitress who is played by, well, you'll, you'll, you can tell who she's played by. I, I will just give you the hint. Uh, she's our cruise director, Ms. Julie McCoy. How's your breakfast? Well, More coffee? Yeah, a little bit, thank you. You look kind of tired. I'm a moonlighter. Poor, I can't afford to pay attention. <laughs> I know what you mean. <laughs> Have you been in here before? You look kind of familiar. Well, you got good eyes there, Kitty. I come up here every year about this time for around China Lake near here. Like last year, I was at the same table, ate the same eggs, and had the same black mud. Well, I know it. What do you do? Well, guess. I can't guess. I had a lot of tip-offs with man's line of work, but his face or his eyes, hands. Read your imagination. I don't know. You an actor? No. No, 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 no. no. Well, you kind of look like a soldier. I'm a writer. A writer? Well, now, how was I ever going to figure that out? Well, if you examine me closely, you would see that there's a callus right here, see? Now, the only way that you can get that is from a pen or a pencil. Rub it, you know, against the same spot hour after hour. It's kind of like Sherlock Holmes or something. <laughs> yeah. So um, she's only in a couple scenes, but I kind of feel like she's a little pivotal to the film, and we can talk about that when we get to the end. Um, but go ahead, Dan. Yeah, so yeah, that that's Donnelly is kind of he talks like that a lot through the movie. He talks like this, and he has um he's continually creepy, especially obviously after the first scene you see him in. And there is an important moment in this uh, scene where a um a guy a couple of jerks kind of pick on um uh, Julie's character. I don't know her character name. I didn't write down her character name. <laughs> oh, good. so I'm going to call her Julie McCoy. Um, uh, Ju and they pick on her. And, and there's a great moment um, where he is leaving this diner and he sees one of the jerk's cars. And it has a bumper sticker that says, Cement Workers Stay Hard Forever, I believe. Oh, yeah. Which, yes. <laughs> and so he's like, hmm, yes. So we kind of cut in between that point with, with Sheriff Brody beginning to um, uh, check out about this guy and his missing wife. And he is having Cindy do some um, transcribe some logs about um, past crimes in China Lake because he's new there. And you learn that he uh, he's divorced from his wife and he has a son and they don't live anywhere near him. They're in San Bernardino, which I I think it's quite some distance. I know where San Bernardino is. I never quite figured out where China Lake was. Um, but I believe there, there's some distance away. And he was a cop. And he's, he's come out to this place to try something new in the desert. And Donnelly, one night, is at a bar. And he decides he has to tinkle. And he decides rather than using the bar bathroom, he's going to pee on the next the storefront next to the bar. Such a Bobby rabble. pulls up a... Yeah, that's Michael Parks. Then came Bronson, baby. And uh, he, Bobby arrests him, throws him in jail. And the next day, uh, Sheriff Brody shows up in the morning and sees a little note saying, hey, there's a, there's a rummy in, uh, in, the, in the cell. And uh, Brody finds uh, that Donnelly is a cop. And he goes and, um, yeah, Park Parks is in jail there. And he goes and, and talks, Scarrett goes and talks to him. Officer Donnelly. Yes, sir, Sheriff. I guess I got a little out of hand last night, huh? Yeah. Well, my first 
stay vacation, you know, let off a little too much steam, I guess. What are you doing up here, Donnelly? Well, I'm uh, <clears throat> going up to Kernville to see my sister. Yeah, I stopped for a hamburger, you know, and had a few, and had a few, and you know how it is. You gonna rain me? What do you suggest? Recommend community service? Well, you know, making choices what being a cop's all about, isn't it? I mean, you know, there's the ones you lean on, the ones you know you can let off. And where do we stop for donuts? Listen, I got 24 years in on the force. And if you bust me, they can shut my pension down cold and I go out with nothing. Mm. You know I'm not going to do it again. Hey, where you going? What's the matter? Hey! Some cops deserve a break in this one horse town! That is the most excitement Michael Parks has ever exuded ever in his 77 years. And I wanted it captured on a sound clip. <laughs> and, you know, Tom yes. Scarrett's not exactly like, I don't know, he's like the most laid back yeah. person on the planet. They're like the two most laid back people I've ever seen. Yes. Yeah. And they and they get a lot of scenes together where they sort of lay back one another, as it were. I don't <laughs> think that's an act. I'll ask my wife what it is. But so so the movie goes along and. Uh, obviously, Donnelly is a killer, and you learn, uh, Brody and Cindy begin to have a relationship in a real sweet scene where they start to um, do some batting practice because she's like a softball pitcher. Uh, but the great thing is Donnelly is like, I don't know, he's like Bob and what about Bob? Or he's like one of those guys who just keeps, like, he thinks Donnelly's gone. Brody thinks he's got him out of town, but he keeps coming back. And Brody doesn't lock his house, so Donnelly keeps showing up in his house, and he's got a camper out back, and he's he's out there. And Cindy presents this bit of this log she's been doing, says that in the past, I think it's five years or so, there have been 14 or 15 disappearances and murders in China Lake. And Brody goes and talks to the old sheriff who's like, I'm drunk, I, I don't know what's going on. And it's true, he is drunk, and he doesn't know what's going on. So so Sam's <laughs> a little like, this is weird, and and... He begins to sort of it's it's an interesting kind of um uh, not quite cat and mouse but it's sort of like Donnelly is ve- clearly nuts as you watch it and he he does a lot of weird things like they do a little target practice with Budweiser cans in in Brody's backyard and at one point Donnelly just points his gun like at Brody's head and then gets a little like ha 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 thing on his on his face and so Brody is beginning to examine the fact that Donnelly says he's gone on vacation here for the past. Four out of five years, or five out of six years, one of the years he went to Bermuda, and every time he's been here, people have vanished. Meanwhile, Donnelly goes out, pretending to be a cop, well, not pretending to be a cop, and he goes out and he catches the cement worker, puts him in a trunk, sends the car out to the middle of nowhere. And uh, Brody, Donnelly, and Bobby, a little bit later, head out to the desert to try to find the cement worker, and... There's a lot of weird stuff they find. They find, you know, it's like you wander out into the deserts. As far as I'm concerned, it's all the hills have eyes. It's just people who want to eat you. So it gets weird when they go out there and they find this guy in the trunk and they bring him back. Yeah, and he's alive. He is alive. Yes, yes, he is alive. He's not well. Much to Donnelly's shock, right? Yes, unlike um, uh, a little bit earlier when they find the woman in the trunk in a scene which they don't show, but I feel is very gruesome. Yes, and I'll, I'll sort I'll sort of wrap this up. I, I will take it to this point. Um, uh, Bobby is out driving, and Bo- Bobby is big on listening to um, uh, baseball on the radio, and he's got his transistor going. And Donnelly is apparently left, and this will this will be right more or less wrap it up. And he's driving out, and he sees a cop beating a guy, handcuffed guy, at a trunk, 
uh, by the trunk of this guy's car. And Bobby gets out and he's like, hey, what's going on? And it's Donnelly. And Donnelly says, sorry, kid, shoots Bobby dead, shoots the guy with the handcuffs dead, picks up the little transistor radio. Were there transistor radios in 1990? But he put it to his ear and he's listening to this baseball game. And then a little later on, uh, when they discover, like, where'd Bobby go? And uh, this uh, cement worker who Sam is now kind of certain was put in that trunk by Donnelly, who is really weird. They have a sequence where Sam basically gets the highway patrol who kind of take over all these things from local Sheriff Sam. They, they talk to him about what, uh, well, they question Donnelly. Who are you following, sir? Can you do that? Officer Donnelly, I'm Captain Finney. I want to thank you for agreeing to talk to us. It shouldn't take too long. Uh, you want something to drink? No, but I'd like a cigarette. Sure. Uh, I won't beat around the bush, officer. We're investigating a series of murders out here, which, roughly speaking, coincides with your last five, uh, four of your last five vacations. We wanted to talk to you because we want to know where you were yesterday between the hours of 4 and 6 p.m. and the day before. That's Wednesday between, say, the hours of 3 and 5 p.m. In that order? Well... I was in an arroyo outside of Little Lakes Valley, trying to fix my Harley and listen to the ball game. What was wrong with it? Well, I thought it was a carburetor, but it was just a plug fuel line. Who won? What's that? Who won the ball game? Dodgers, six to two. Did you listen to the whole game? You're bad. And if I ask you what happened in the bottom of the six, you might remember. Randolph got on and Murray hit a home run and uh, what's his name got a single Lenny Harris hit one over the right field wall I believe it was Hampton got the single are you a fan? what about Wednesday afternoon? Wednesday afternoon I went shopping looking for a toy for my nephew at Kmart in Reno. Would you like to know when I got him? That's not necessary. Yeah. Well, you know those Kmart's in Reno. <laughs> those are the best. Those are the best. Dangerous. Those are the two story jobs. Yeah. Those are fantastic. So, so and, wait, I wanted to mention real quick that the cop uh, interrogating uh, Donnelly is played by Bill McKinney, and Bill McKinney was the great, wonderful actor who passed away a couple years ago. Who I guess I know best from She Freak, and what I know best about him oh, from She Freak yes. is you said. Uh, when he's laying in bed, right, with the woman, he says, uh, I knew this guy who had no arms and no legs, and he used to do a show for me. I'm paraphrasing this part, but, and uh, one day he had to get on stage, and he didn't want to go, and I said, I'm a man, and you're a man. Now get up on that stage and do your stuff. And that's like one of my all-time favorite lines from a movie ever, <laughs> ever. And, well, I've never forgotten Bill McKinney in all my years, but I think he's also in Deliverance. Mm. And um, he's been in. It could be, yeah. Yeah, he's been in a lot of amazing films, and he's one of those actors that I think to myself, "Wow, from She Freak." <laughs> you know what I mean? You didn't think anybody. She Wow. On although the guy that plays the guy that owns the diner, he was on Dallas and stuff, and he's in Dark Knight of the Scarecrow, so he, yes. he did work a lot. But yeah. uh, anyway, I love Bill McKinney too, so I just wanted to point that out. And I love She Freak, and I would like to uh, point that out too. <laughs> oh, and Bill McKinney was in Back to the Future Three. Oh, I didn't know that. What? What? He plays the engineer who t- who tells he tells Doc Brown when they go to say so. Can a train get up to eighty eight miles an hour? He's the engineer who talks about how fast a train can go. 
Um, but yeah, that's where I'm going to leave it. To Michael J. Fox, I'm a man and you're a man. Now get up on that stage and do your stuff. (laughs) Do your business. Um, And and I'm going to leave it there because what happens is at this point, Brody knows that Donnelly is a bad guy, but Donnelly just has a big look on his face like whatever, and he keeps getting out of it. So it has to be like, can Brody stop Donnelly from throwing someone else in a trunk in the desert? Mm, maybe. He is Tom Skerritt. <laughs> so so I wanted to sort of talk about our feelings about the film, and then I kind of want to go into some thoughts that I have, because this is kind of a complex film, um, and uh, and there's just some things I noticed when I watched it. So uh, I just think we should just say kind of how we feel about it and a little bit, and then we'll get into the spoiler stuff afterwards. So, Dan, had you seen this before? No. No, I had not. I, I, I quite liked it. Um, I, I did think, I don't know if this is me, maybe my Michael Parks tolerance is a little low, but I thought it could have been a little shorter. I got about 70, 75 minutes into it and thought, we can wrap it up now. But um, I generally quite enjoyed it. I think um, Tom's, well, everyone's really great in it. But yeah, Michael Parks has this thing where he is nutty out of the gate. I mean, he's obviously completely deranged. But there's something about Tom Skerritt. He kind of keeps giving, you know, because uh, Donnelly keeps saying all sorts of crazy crap about everything. And and Brody is always like, mm-hmm, yes. <laughs> Let me give you another beer. Mm, okay. Yeah, I'll leave my door open. You can say that. <laughs> I don't know. I've never lived in a town where you can leave your door open, your front door open. I'm sure it's awesome. But I never have. Uh, but but there is something like if you think a guy who keeps coming into your house who you think isn't supposed to be there is a mass murderer, now's the time to start locking the door. Maybe he just lost the key. I don't know. But there is a point where, like, Sam keeps coming home during the movie and he's like, is Donnelly here? Is And generally, yes, he is. I think it's got a nice um, – the desert stuff is great. Yeah. It has a very sort of bleak – hot feel to it uh, and there is a great feeling as you you get to the point where Brody realizes what Donnelly is up to when Donnelly is so assured of himself he's been doing this so long that you're like how is Brody gonna do this you know it's like as Donnelly says you know hey I'm a cop aren't you gonna help a cop out kind of thing I, I, I yeah I like the two of them I think they're kind of a nice nice going up against each other because Brody has that feel of I was a cop somewhere bigger than this and now I want somewhere a little calmer where crazy stuff doesn't yeah, happen. And then, and, Donald, uh, yeah, and then Donnelly has the feel of, I'm a cop in a big city, and I come out here to take out my aggression on random people on the highway. So there's kind of a nice um, link up there. And there's some interesting moments, too, with sort of like them in bed with assorted women. Well, not assorted women, just And they're not two, in bed together. Um, which kind of... They're not in bed together, no. Um, but yeah, I, I, I quite enjoyed it. I, I um, Again, uh, as with Bogan County, I don't know if I loved it, but I thought it was pretty darn good. I, I think it, it makes its case, and it keeps up the tension to the end, and there's a nice moment in the end where you get a little worried about a character, but then the day is saved, and then it, it kind of resolves its... It, actually, it resolves itself... Maybe a little bit too much with a, hey, now I'm over here and I got the gun kind of thing. But um, that might be a spoiler. But um, I don't think it is. It was too stupid. Um, but I, I, think, I think I liked it all the way. It's got good actors, good locations. I think it's well-written, well-directed. I, I, think it's, I think it's pretty darn good. Although my question is, 
I didn't see a lake. Did you guys see a lake? Am I, did I miss something? I think there must be a lake in Toluca Lake, but I never could find it. It's. I know where it's. It's. It. it was, it's on Bob's Hope, Bob Hope's property. If, uh, if you go up a lake? behind, if you yes, there was a lake there. It's. It's there. Um, I forget. Is it Riverside? Riverside Drive, where there's like a Trader Joe's on Riverside Drive near the Bob's Big Boy. If you go back towards the hills. You'll get to a corner where it's Bob Hope's house. And if you've seen his Christmas specials from like the 80s, they go in there. And the lake is somewhere there. Maybe maybe the lake is at Bob Hope's house then. He's trying to like... Maybe it is in his living room. Oh, yeah. that's true. Yeah. yeah. I'm going to write so, that down. I'm gonna, you don't know. It would be a field know. trip. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay, Nate, had you seen this before? No, this was a first watch for me as well. And? And I really liked it. Uh, I thought the I I think the idea of and you know this obviously wasn't you know the first movie to do this, but just the idea of a cop being the killer because you know most people mm-hmm. would pull over if a cop you know asked you know was pulled up behind them, and also like you know the I was thinking about the scene where he goes after the the guy and you know the one that ends up surviving. Um, yes. And I'm like, the guy's got a tire iron, but I'm like, okay, say this guy gets, like, um, the upper hand and, like, beats the cop with a tire iron, then he's probably going to go to prison. Because I don't know that they're going to necessarily believe that the cop was after him first. So I'm like, it's just sort of a lose-lose situation if you get targeted by this guy. Um, And that poor deputy, I mean, talk about being in the wrong place at the wrong time in this movie. Uh, I mean, yeah, just uh, that was just the wrong time for him, unfortunately. But uh, the movie itself, I you know, I liked. I thought that all the scenes between uh, Michael Parks and uh, Tom Skerritt were were very interesting. Even when um, Tom Skerritt isn't suspicious of him just yet, I don't know. There's just some kind of weird tension in those scenes. Yeah. Um, you know, you just wonder like what is Michael Parks going to do? What's his game? Like, what, what is he going to try uh, all together? But um, I will say that I absolutely loved the way the movie begins and the way it ends. Yeah, and y'all, y'all know what I'm talking about. I think y'all know what I'm talking about without me spoiling oh, yeah. it. But just like the opening shot and the final shot, I thought was very, I don't know, poetic. Is that a good word for it? I'm not sure. But I just thought it was very well done. So I really enjoyed the China Lake murders. I thought both movies we covered. I was glad that we covered them because oh. I got to see new stuff. Yay! Um, so I saw the China Lake murders mm. the night it premiered. What? Yeah, I watched a lot of USA movies on their original run because they did a lot of genre fare, which we'll sort of talk about in the background. And I liked it because it was a real throwback to like 70s TV movies. They put a lot of it. They put a lot of attention into sort of like looking back at those movies that were so popular and uh, sort of trying to redo them sort of 90s style. And they did a really good job. Um, the first TV uh, USA original TV movie I remember watching is Murder by Night with Robert Urich. It was the fourth one produced for the channel, I think. But they would advertise the crap out of them. And, you know, I was like, I guess I would have been 19 when this came out and I was hungry for those types of movies. And um, I must have seen a China Lake Murders ad and thought, I need to see this. And I remember really, really liking it. And it re-ran quite a bit in the early 90s. 
90s because I saw it a couple times. And then I revisited it a few years ago for my blog. We did. And then I revisited it again because uh, Paul Freetag Fay and I did a year long retrospective on the USA original. And this was one of the movies that I sort of re went back and reappraised again. And um, it, I just loved it. I loved it because I love the interplay between Parks and Scarrett. It's really good because you're right. He kind of has an idea that Donnelly is probably the killer. And there are moments where he sort of lets his guard down and he, and I think Donnelly knows he knows, but he keeps doing it. And he, it's like they have a friendship because they both come from similar places being a police officer, right? So there's this sort of brother-in-arms thing that happens automatically between them. And for Scarrett, it's like a hard bond for him to break because he doesn't want to believe that one of his own is doing this. But he's also compelled to prove that he's the bad guy. And so it gets him into all kinds of situations where the guy comes back to his home and he sort of allows it. And that's what I think is so complex and interesting about the film is that the characters don't always do what you would expect them to do. But I think that the characters work. It's not like you feel like it just came out of the blue. Like I see why Scarrett's doing what he's doing, even though it may seem outlandish from the outside. As the character he's playing, I can say, yeah, I see where this is going. And so the complexity of the two together is really interesting. And I do like the fact that Parks is really nutty, but he's also so calm at the same time. Like there's this real, he's scarier that way because there's such an uh, undercurrent of menace, but the surface is kind of sweet. Like his interactions with Lauren Tews in the movie who plays the waitress are very nice. And the reason I believe her name is Kitty. Oh, Kitty. You're right. Yes. Um, The reason why um, I say she's pivotal to the film is I guess now we're going to get into spoiler territory. So so um, I love this movie. That's what I want to say. But there's a couple things I want to talk about. First of all, it has connections to The Hitcher, and it reminds me an awful lot of The Hitcher. Yes. Yes, and yes. that's because why does Michael Parks do what he do? do why does he do what he's doing? Do, do what he do. Why does, why does he, he do, do what he do? do? <laughs> and why does he keep coming back? Well, much like is it John Ryder, the Rucker Howard character name, he sort of targets – um, oh, my God, what's the actor's name? C. Thomas Howell. He targets C. Thomas Howell in The Hitcher. It's almost like he picks him to be the one to catch him. There's this, there's a sort of interplay between the two. It's not really homoerotic, although in The Hitcher there's a layer of that. But there's there's like um, a bromance there, and it's kind of like a chemistry that I can't quite describe. But it's almost like Parks wants to get this is how I view it anyway. It's almost like Park wants to get caught and he's and he, he wants Scarrett to be the character that catches him, right? Do, do, do you think it has something to do with the fact that when we see the previous sheriff, he's kind of an old gross guy and he's not Tom Scarrett kind of good looking. Yeah. And maybe he's like, I'm not gonna I'm not getting caught by that guy. Mm-mm. Yeah, no, that nope. guy's an idiot. Nope. I no, I want to be caught yeah. by somebody <laughs> as smart as I am. And, yes, and yes, exactly. you know, it's like a game, but there's a part of me that thinks he wants to get caught. So why I say Lauren Tews is so important is that she survives the film. And so, yes. so like, why does he do what he does? Well, the, if you'll notice in the opening, when the car goes by um, in the overhead shot, the car that the woman's in that she's going to eventually get killed and put in the, well, she gets put in the trunk of it and then dies in the trunk. She almost runs somebody off the road. Right. She's speeding. Oh, yes. Yep. yep, And and it's like Michael Parks is like deciding who the good people and the bad people are. And actually, their crimes are pretty minor, but it's enough that he feels that they should be punished for them. So the second guy, he gooses Lauren Tews character, Kitty, and 
therefore he has to die. And so like he's playing judge and executioner, right? Uh, the whole way down and he's deciding who should suffer and who shouldn't. And Kitty is kind of a real down on her luck character. You know, she's pretty, but she's not beautiful. Um, she's lives a really plain life. She's got a real dead end job and she's very innocent. She's very wide eyed. Does she have a bed or is it like a fold out thing? Uh, I couldn't quite tell. I'm not sure, but but something my husband pointed out that's interesting. She has dirt on her feet. I, I noticed that. I thought because because when you see her leave the the um, diner, she mentions a double shift, and then Michael Parks picks her up, and we'd all follow Michael Parks. But but yeah, she's got dirty feet. Almost like she was so surprised by him taking her to bed that. Wash your feet. I don't know. Is that? Well, I don't know if she got know. it at work or if just the house was so dirty because she never had time to clean it. And oh, you know what I mean? He's just shuffling around the house while he was there because they had coffee first and you know whatever. Mm. But like, but she is such a sweet character, and he recognizes that in her, so he he lets her go. And mm-hmm. and so there's like this there's this idea that he understands who is good and who is bad that I find so interesting. And so I think Lauren Tews is really important because you have to see that he also in a way has a kind of, of course he sleeps with her, right? He's getting something from her, but there's some kind heartedness to him in a way that I find really interesting, but I think it's a correlation to the hitcher. And what I think is interesting is we were talking about the ending. The ending doesn't have a huge action packed climax, you know? And I think in a way Tom Skerritt has outsmarted him because I think Michael Parks thought when he was going to go down, he would go down guns blazing, right? Yes. And he didn't. He didn't get what he wanted. I think he got caught and he got in a situation where he was just going to get arrested. And He got one-upped. Yeah. Yeah, yeah he got one-upped. And he I, didn't expect it. I love that. I love that. But the Hitcher has, like, mm-hmm. the cops are trying to come in, and you know what I mean? There's that whole interplay where they don't understand yeah. the relationship. And so it's very Hitcher-esque. And we'll talk about its relationship to the Hitcher later. But um, yeah. and, and so that's what I find so compelling about this film is that it is different, and it is really well acted, and it is really about the characters, two guys just hanging mm-hmm. out, and how one is sort of, it's like they're both onto each other's game, whatever Tom Skerritt's game is, you know, he he's divorced, yeah. he's got this, and they both understand each other on a level that other people don't, and it's just about figuring out how to break that bond and to sort of put an end to the crime spree that's happening, and it's fascinating. And I, 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 I like the way that, that- Tom uh, Brody kind of breaks the um, he, he, he kind of when he catches um, uh, Michael Parks in the end there, there's a moment where um, there our cement worker is doing his he hears something and he looks around but he doesn't see anyone and he hears something he looks around doesn't see anyone and then all of a sudden Michael Parks on the motorcycle flies by him and you'd think he would have heard that but he doesn't and I'm okay with that uh, because later on when Cindy is pretending that she has car trouble and he pulls up she's like oh i didn't hear you and he says well you know it's the ones you don't hear that are the whatever but then but then he gets caught by tom he doesn't hear tom scarrett come up on him with a gun and so i like that that tom scarrett is almost like whether or not i think he's like a like um like a kind of a linking up kind of psychic thing where he's like um, there's kind of a Zen thing that, that Michael Parks' character does where he is able to get upon the people and Tom Skerritt is able to kind of do that yeah, and, and get right up to him at the last, sort of like, yeah, just, just like he's got a Zen sort of walking on water kind of 
you know, doesn't get hurt, like Joel Gray at the end of Remo Williams kind of thing. <laughs> you know, you don't hear him, and he's going, and he gets, and it's it's really nice because he's kind of zings him with the 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 thing that he was that Parks was using against people to be a jerk. If that makes yes. sense. Yeah, so so it's a really, really interesting kind of unique film in that way. Um, I don't know if there's much more to say about it. I want Nate to talk about the beginning and end because I feel like I, I, I don't know the shots. Um, sure. It's um, the beginning, you know, you see the, the cops and you see, it focuses on the empty chair. Oh, yes. And okay, to me, that sort of signifies, you know, he's on vacation, he's on the hunt. He's on the kill. And then at the end, you see the cops doing their their thing again, and again it pans to the empty chair, and this time he's dead. Yeah. So I just thought it was very interesting that they they shot it that way. Yeah, I I do wonder why they did – why they had to – make it and i guess to kind of prove that he was an actual cop or, or something yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I, I wondered why they did that yeah Be, and i do like that what in the first scene you get the roll call and then it gets the donnelly and you see the empty chair in the second one it gets to like Derek's or something before donnelly you see the empty chair and then suddenly it's like Edmonds yeah or something it passes donnelly and it's like oh he is dead or is he <laughs> china lake murders too a new beginning thank you <laughs> this where Donnelly happens upon a halfway house with uh, teenagers and starts killing yeah, them. Yeah, and, yeah, and there's one big guy who's got chocolate all over his fingers, ruining everyone's wash. Yep. yep. Oh, uh, I just watched that did. like last week. That's so really? funny. <laughs> I th- <laughs> yeah, I think we should watch that every month. Is what? <laughs> yeah, it's a pick me up film. I was feeling kind of blue, and I was like, you know what? I'm gonna put on Friday Thirteenth Part Five, and I'm just gonna sit here and stare at it. And I did, and it was so amazing. It was amazing. All, all I think of when A New Beginning came out is, I, I don't know if it was Siskel or Ebert, but whoever it was, because they had talked about the final chapter the year before, and they were like, we guess it's the final chapter. But then when The New Beginning came up, they were like, of course, <laughs> A New Beginning. Of <laughs> it's, course. He's back. It happened. <laughs> and I, I, was, I was thinking today, do you think they had meant to do something where it was going to be like Halloween 3? Yes. Where there was going to be a series of different killers. I think so. Oh, was it okay? Oh, I don't know that. I okay, mean, I feel then, like I heard that somewhere, but I actually, but, you know what? Okay. The internet says all kinds of stuff, and I just believe. Okay, but then I was going to say like it failed. It didn't fail. It did wonderfully. But like people were pissed that it wasn't Jason, yeah. so immediately Jason lives, kind of thing. Yes, absolutely. Which is another back, back story. Back yes, we're, we're, yes. we're leaving Crystal Lake and coming back to China Lake. Can we do that, guys? I want to see the lake. If you can show me the lake. The lake's dried up, just like everybody else's life in that freaking town. What did you guys think of that? So th- there, there's a scene where they, they, they're looking for the cement worker, and they find this kind of makeshift tent in the middle of the desert. It's a homeless guy. I think they went out there to like question him, and he had a gun, because you know there's some gunfire. Okay. Yes. And I think yeah. they went to see if he'd seen something. And okay. um and at this point, Parks wants to come along because he wants to return to the scene of the crime. And he thinks he's being really brilliant about it. Right. And like mm-hmm. um it's interesting because he usurps Bobby at that point. Yes. Right. Because yeah. because Bobby's like, I'm the one that's supposed to come out with you on these calls. And they're all together. I'm... But he's like, wait by the car. Yeah. And and Bobby's like, but I always do the investigating with you. And he's like, not this time. I've got, you know, Michael Parks with me. And if you see Michael Parks. Hair, <laughs> you've seen his freaking hair, guys. Yeah, it's beautiful. beautiful and um and so then Bobby's like, whatever. And he has to and he's getting really mm-hmm. frustrated. And so it's interesting because mm-hmm. Scarrett really respects Donnelly at the beginning. And um mm-hmm. and then of course the it, the veneer 
starts to sort of wash away. But anyway, yes. yeah, and it's just them wandering the desert with all the like lunacy that happens mm-hmm. out there. Yeah, and and Michael Parks down, during that scene too, he has moments like where they're creeping up on the um on this makeshift tent thing, and all of a sudden just Donnelly stands up and goes, "Hey, you jerk, you pervert, what's That's going?" Right. And he yells, and it's like, and Tom Skerritt's got this look on his face like, "Oh God, where did you learn your cop stuff?" Really? We're sneaking. This is the desert. <laughs> We've got a hundred miles of nothing. We could sneak. This is the perfect spot to sneak. It's like, uh, and I love because that's one of those things like Donnelly. I'd love to think that when he's wherever it is that he is a cop, he does crap like that all the time. I think he does. But I think he yeah, but but now that he is actually with a cop in the desert, he's like, oh, that's right. There's no one around for forty miles. We don't have to yell. <sighs> oh, Michael Parks, will like you them. ever learn? So, anyway, that was the China Lake murders. Do you guys have anything else you want to add? Gosh. Oh, um, I, I got one more thing. Oh, Nate, did you have – I'm sorry, Nate. Oh, no, no. I was just going to say uh, I just enjoyed it. That's all. Yay. I, I had one more thing, which was that if the character of Cindy, if I was doing pitching practice with her, then I went back to her house and she offered me a beer. They drink a lot of Budweiser. In this movie, um, which is a theme, maybe Amanda, write that down. Budweiser, um, uh, but uh, and there's a moment where Cindy would offer me a beer, and then I say whatever, and she'd say, "Well, I'm going to take a shower," and and I and say, "Okay, please take a shower." And she, if she said, "Would you like to take one with me?" I have a response that my wife would not like to hear, so I'm not going to say it right here. But um, I think Tom Skerritt makes the right choice. Thank you. Good night. By the way, Dan, I'm not Cindy, your secretary, so I'm not writing down Budweiser. <laughs> oh, oh, okay. Just to be clear. Well, I'm writing it down because I am my own secretary. That's good. That's good. As long as we're clear on that. I am my that. own grandpa. Okay, yes. so let's let's do uh, a little background on the China Lake murders. So, as I said, this was a USA original. It aired on January 31st, 1990. It ran at 9 p.m. It got an 18.4/14 rating, which means 8.4 million homes with televisions were watching, which represents 14% of the TV viewing audience, which made it, at the time it aired, the highest rated made-for-cable TV movie of all time. The one that came closest, there were two that came closest to it. Um, one was called Colt, not even close, but it, the, the, the <laughs> second most highest rated TV movie and third were th- TV movies called Cold Sassy Tree and Fire and Rain. Those both garnered approximate 5.3 ratings, which is much less than 8.4. Um, wow, why did it, do well, we know we'll why talk about it such a high? We'll talk about oh, it here oh. in a second. And, and I just want to wow. say it reran a couple times. It reran on February 4th and then had another rerun in June. Um, those were dates I was able to find, but I remember running quite a bit. A lot of uh, journalists and critics and people who write about TV surmise that the film did so well because the networks were actually airing an address by President Bush Sr. And they all just turned over to the movie instead of watching the... (laughs) He was not a super popular president. I mean, he he only had one term, you know, whatever. But um, So I think people were just like, what else is on TV? Hey, this thing called the China Lake Murders is on. Let's watch it. Pretty good. (laughs) So so it ended up being huge for them. Um, uh, the China Lake Murders was actually part of a six-picture deal for the USA World Premiere banner. The other titles uh, that came with it were um, 
Pride and Extreme Prejudice, something called The Casualty of War, which is not the Michael J. Fox movie. It stars Shelley Hack. Um, something called Dangerous Pursuit, which I sort of remember. Personals, which stars Jennifer O'Neill, and something called The Take. By the way, if you try to Google the personals or The Take, you're going to have a hard time finding information about either one of them because it's so generic. It's, like, impossible. Um, the China Lake Murders was based on a short film from 1983 called China Lake, which starred Charles Napier and William Sanderson. Uh, it was by Robert Harmon, who would go on to direct The Hitcher. Wow. So there's your connection. There's the theme. Yeah. This movie was directed by someone named Alan Metzger, who is probably best known for directing episodes of The Equalizer, which is interesting because Michael Parks is on two episodes of The Equalizer, but neither one was directed by Alan Metzger. Um, Metzger made a lot of TV movies, but this was an early one for him. I think it was his second or third credit, maybe. He was also a cinematographer prior to this, so I think you can see when you watch this movie, it's very beautifully shot. Uh, Metzger was currently on staff as the director of production at the Academy for Careers in Television and Film. But going back to the cinematography, this, the film was shot by somebody named Gregory Schaff, who uh, this was only his second screen credit. I think he does an amazing job shooting this film. Um, uh, the screenwriter's name was Neven Schreiner, Shine Schreiner, I think is how you pronounce it. And he worked on a lot of USA titles, including This Gun for Hire. And he wrote uh, Lifetime's first original made-for-TV movie, Memories of Murder, as well, which I think starred Nancy Allen. Um, Variety gave The China Lake Murders a very positive review. They referenced uh, Then Came Bronson because of the motorcycle connection. Um, they said Parks was, quote-unquote, complex. Film, quote, clicks along and turns up the tension. So Lauren Tews at this stage was sort of at the end of her uh, TV career. You know, she ended up doing a lot of acting and directing in local theater, and I'm pretty sure she was living in the Pacific Northwest at that time, or she lives there now. The USA TV movies averaged about $2.5 million per film. Their overall budget for this season was $75 million, so they put a lot of money into their TV movies. TNT spent even more. They were spending about $4.5 million on their TV movies in 1990. Uh, the MPAA issued a PG-13 rating on October 29, 1990 for the China Lake Murders VHS release, but the VHS date, uh, release date is unclear to me. I see dates in 91 and 96. It was more than likely 91 if it went through the MPAA the year before. The president of USA Network was uh, somebody named Kay Koplovitz. Kay might be a woman, I'm not sure, but they said, quote, our intent is to make movies, not telefilms, end quote. And so they really liked working on genre fair, and they apparently avoided social issues and politics, which to my memory sounds about right. And that is my background on the China Lake murders. Wow, look at us. We've got Nate here in time for feedback. So yeah. can I, and I don't, can, may I just say one more thing yeah. about USA and then we'll go right to feedback. I, I like the concept that during the second half of the eighties, I watched commander USA and USA up all night and the Saturday nightmares. And yeah. was that it? Um, yeah. USA Saturday night. They used to, and I used to watch it all the time. And I love the concept that people may have switched over from a speech by the president to watch this. Like I remember watching one night. I remember watching spookies yes. And another night, I remember watching Mausoleum. Yes. I would have loved if, like, suddenly Mausoleum got, like, 16 million viewers. <laughs> on uh, Which, until, like, the Vinegar Syndrome Blu-ray came out a few months ago, a month or so ago, was probably the most it ever got. I would love I would love that concept. that Because that, um, they used to so show, show such great stuff on there. 
the USA was sort of a gateway to all kinds of stuff for me because it was it came around all that program yes. that you mentioned and the USA original movies, which were quite often thrillers and horror movies, really spoke to me at that time because I was looking for all kinds of stuff, but I didn't really necessarily know where to start. And so I would just put on and yes. I, t- I loved Commander USA and I loved USA up all night. But Saturday Nightmares <laughs> really opened that door for me because it. they showed like the unnameable. They showed the outing. Those are the two I remember yes. watching. And they didn't really edit too much. And so like the outing, mm-hmm. I remember being really brutal. And, uh, and that was yeah. like, as a 19 year old that was at home on Saturday night, because what the fuck was I going to do at 19? I was such a nerd. I was going to watch <laughs> the unnameable and have a great time and, you know, discover all these movies. Yeah. And so they were a really important network that probably deserves more historicizing yeah. than they get. And, and yes. so a lot of people talk about USA up all night and commander USA, but the USA original movie really fits in that with that. They were really doing genre films with all their hearts. And they used to show a lot of like the Friday the 13th movies and stuff, and they would edit them, which at that time was okay for me because I was scared to death of seeing anything gory. It wasn't until the end of the eighties. So then I was good, but it would also show like short films and things. They, they showed that great short film where you see the guy like assembling like something out of metal and setting something up, and then he puts like a like a lever down, and he puts his head on it, and then it's a giant mouse trap, and you see it snap down on his neck, and then they have the bit from Escapes where the guy is um, fishing, and he picks up a sandwich by the shore, takes a bite of the sandwich, and something from the lake drags him in Ooh. to the water, and they would they would show these little shorts uh, between the movies where it was like, oh my god, I'm so scared, I can't even I think move. they used to, I think, think they happen. used to rerun Dark Room too, which was a very short-lived anthology. That was great. Oh, yes, that's And great. I think yep. that they reran yep. those six episodes ad nauseum for a period that was really, yeah, they were just yep. a great yep. network and and they need yep. to be remembered were... better than I think that they, and I'm sure the programming is still good, but it's different, so who cares about it? But anyway, okay, so let's, <laughs> let's do our feedback while we got Nate. Feedback time. Yeah. Oh yes. So what I will say is we didn't get a ton of feedback. We got a lot of little snippets, no letters. So shame on you, all you Michael Parks fans, because you're missing out, guys. These are good movies. So let let me just tell you who said what. Warren Sykes on Twitter said it's probably not really worth having discussion about. Sorceress, but I kind of love that one. Whether or not someone likes Red State, Parks is masterful in it. Also really great as Ambrose Spears in the straight-to-video from Destel Dawn sequel he was in. Oh, I didn't know he was in one of those sequels. I haven't seen those. Um, our friend Tim S. Turner on Facebook said, Always been a huge Parks fan, a highly underrated actor who surely deserves some sort of recognition from the Academy, even if it was only a Lifetime Achievement Award. And I loved how Tarantino and Rodriguez used him as a Texas Ranger, as Texas Ranger Earl McGraw in From Dust Till Dawn, Kill Bill 1, Planet Terror and Death Proof, both halves of the combo from Grindhouse. That's interesting. He played a Texas Ranger quite a bit, it looks like, in his career. A truly talented man who thankfully had a late-in-life career renaissance in some high-profile films. Thanks so much for showcasing the superlative actor. Melanie Ellen on Facebook put three hearts and then just wrote Michael Parks. I get. I understand, Melanie. I, there you go, I feel Melanie. it. I, I feel it. Our friend Joanne 
Our friend Joanne Michaels on Facebook said he made his roles in Kill Bill 1 and 2 Meteor. Always a pleasure to see his body of work. Holly Tigney on Facebook wrote, I love the China Lake Murders. Has it ever had a legit DVD release? I don't think it has, although I I think it has a VHS release. I think we just talked about its home video release. And a lot of USA Originals did have VHS releases, and sometimes you can find them fairly affordable on Amazon. So if you liked a USA movie, look it up. You might be able to find it. Michael Parks was one of those character actors that when you saw his name in the credits, you knew you were going to see a great performance. Scott Edwards on Facebook said a true great and don't forget Long Lonesome Highway um, so Scott met uh, Michael Parks a couple years ago right before he passed away and he said he was very soft spoken and an unassuming gentleman um, that makes me sad I, he was here in Texas the year before I moved here a Texas frightmare so I missed him by one year because I go to that every year and I would have given anything to have met Michael Parks I love him David Assassino on Facebook said and I'm going to totally mispronounce this but he used a foreign word here. He wrote his bad Kebusois accent. Kebu Kebuswe. Kebuswe. Kebe. I'm just gonna let you keep going. I don't. I, I don't even know what that it. might be. Is it a C or a K? Had, it's a Q U E B E C O I S, and it's got little. Quebec is it? Qu- well, it's Quebec? got little. It's got the little Quebec? dialect. Qu- what is called diacritic? Those do, do, yeah, doodle above doodle the e's. So it's like Quebec. 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 And I'm um, sorry about that, David. I know we destroyed whatever you wrote, but thank you for sending that in, and I really appreciate it. Um, and I'm sure you could say the word, and if you ever come up to me again at uh, one of my screenings here in Austin, he lives here in Austin, you can tell me how to pronounce that word. I would really appreciate it. Um, so that's our Michael Parks episode. Uh, yay. Yeah. Can I can I just say one one more thing you mentioned that I wanted to just, just say a moment on? Do you think that Donnelly, Donnelly, right? That's his character in um, the thing. Um, Yeah, Michael Parker's character. Do you think that is is his character named Bronson and then came Bronson? I haven't watched that in ages. Do you think that is Bronson like 20 years later? Like he went out, he hit the road on a motorcycle like a hippie and then he eventually became well, no, he says he's been doing it for 25 years. Okay. Yeah, no. No. Sorry. I don't, it's Bronson... I can't see Bronson doing that. He's too idealistic. I can't see him being broken down. Okay. I thought it was maybe like a, yeah, I, I was going to say, I thought it was maybe like a Harold Lloyd, his character from The Freshman to Preston Sturgis's The Sin of Harold Diddlebach, where he kind of goes from being a college hero to being like some faceless office drone uh, and uh, like 25 years later kind of thing. I thought that was my yeah. thought. But, um, no. but no, I, I'm, I'm with you. The answer is no, and I'm writing that down on my thing next to look up Budweiser. No, Budweiser. Yeah, thank you. You are your own secretary. I am not your Cindy. Okay. <laughs> you I am not. not. Make a note of that, would you? Uh, right next to the no, not yeah, my thank Cindy. You. So uh, just real quick, uh, because this is going to go out kind of towards the end of January. On February 7th, if you're listening and you live in Los Angeles, I am going to be doing another TV movie lecture in Los Angeles at oh. the Miskatonic Institute of Horror Studies. I can't remember exactly where it's being held. It's a philosophical research something. something. I hope I can find it. I hope you can, too. I've never heard of it. <laughs> um, but oh, I can't wait to heckle you. 
Oh my yeah, that would be great, Stan. I can't wait. I'm going to make sure that you can't get in. Um, so anyway, uh, look up, just look up the Miskatonic Institute of Horror Studies and you'll find my lecture. And please come see me and please come say hi. If uh, you come, I would love to meet you. Uh, so that, again, is February 7th. I also, well, a couple things, and I'll say one more when we talk about what our next episode will be. But uh, I'm going to be doing a series of mini-sodes, and they're going to be different depending on my mood. But I found a lot of my made-for-TV Mayhem minutes, and I'm going to re-record them because they were so... I did one that I put online already that you can find from, uh, like, two Thanksgivings ago. But uh, it was... It's not like I'm great at reading scripts now, but they are super awkward. So, but I like all the research that I did for them. And so I want to kind of give them another home. They were part of a podcast that doesn't exist anymore. So I'm going to repurpose them and it'll be called the made for TV mayhem minutes. And I'll make sure to label them as such in case you're not interested and you can just get past it. No, it's not a full episode. They'll be about 20 minutes long. And then I'm going to be doing something. It's going to be a solo cast that I'll also mark clearly because some people did say they didn't want this. It's uh, Trapper John MD podcast. Yay. It's going to be called the trap cast cast there will hopefully be an episode every month i'm gonna try really hard to stick to that because there's 151 episodes of trapper john and i want to do two episodes a podcast minisode so the so to do that and get that done in like 70 something weeks i have to get started and really stick to it um that should be really fun i'm hoping to have that online in february i've been doing tons and tons of research and i've started watching the show again and i love it um and uh, you may or may not have heard already that I was a guest on the last episode of the Hysteria Continues, a recent, most recent, and I don't know if it's the most recent based on when this comes out, but it was an episode dedicated to Iced. Woo-hoo. Yay! And so it was really great. Nate was there, and so was his crew. And Dan got mentioned a lot because he sort of uh, took over Iced there for a while. And um, you can help <laughs> for a few bots, yeah. Yeah. So, um, so that'll happen. So check us out on that, uh, Nate and I. And uh, Dan, do you have anything you want to promote? I'm not doing anything but sitting here listening to you talk. No, um, I am going to see Amanda on February 7th, uh, wherever this is going to be. I um, I guess I'll take a Lyft or an Uber there yeah. so they can just they can just maneuver wherever they have to go. Um, what do I have going on? Um, oh, I started a new Minute by Minute um, podcast, One Minute with European Zombies, circa 1980. And it is, I, I, the fourth episode just went up. By the time you hear this, we'll probably be about eight episodes in. Uh, I am discussing uh, Jean, Jean, Jean Rolin, Jean Rolin, you know, Jean I Rola. call him JR. Jean Rolin. Yes, I call him. Jean Rolin. I call him uh, JR in the podcast. Um, his zombie lake. And I'm discussing Andrea Bianchi's. Burial Ground, aka hey. the Knights of Terror, with uh, the great Michael in it. If you know, if you know who Michael is, you you you'll get excited right the there. The greatest moment will be this cloth smells like this, Mama. This cloth smells like yeah, that'll be the be best awesome. minute ever. And, and I actually forgot when I was doing the first like half a dozen minutes. It's mostly a guy with a big beard and a naked woman. So it was beards and broads, and it was tough to extrapolate on that. But I sure. think I got it. And and so uh, I did that. That's going on. Um, yeah, it, it's all the same stuff. Eventually, Super Train will be back up in February, and we have two new, brand new old shows coming up. 
and uh, Bourbon Street Beat continues with Mitchell Hadley. So, and I'm I'm still working on my third book from Beverly Hills to Hooterville. I'm about 500 reviews in. Wow, so great. it's 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 pretty crazy. June Lockhart is there. B. Benedict unfortunately has passed away. Yeah, that's so um, sad. Yeah, and and um, Granny is in love with Sam Drucker. Yeah, back in as Hooterville. we all were. So, yes, exactly. So there's a lot of stuff going on here right now. And um, and I I can't and that iced episode you guys did is really good and I actually would like to hear it again right now. Go for it. He's listening. Right. He's listening. Awesome. Nate. So Nate, what do you have going on? Oh, nothing. Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> nothing really. I'm still doing the hysteria continues and that's a lot. TV mayhem. That's a lot. So that's you guys a, should turn in, and listeners should tune into this Derek Continues, not just because it's a great show, but also because Nate does do a lot, because they do commentaries and stuff too, and they'll keep you up to date yes. on all the stuff that they're doing, which seems like an endless, endless supply of awesome. So, um, so, so look for that. Um, so what I want to say is our next episode will be, we, so every February we do Valentine's episodes. The thing is, is that I won't get, the, I won't get us together and, and I won't get this up before the 14th of February. There's just no way with my schedule. So we're still going to do two romance movies. Um, but they're going to do be two first. So they are, they are romance movies, romantic, romantic comedies is what we're doing this time around, but they're also love letters to two people who recently left us. So we're going to watch more than friends, which stars Penny Marshall and Rob Reiner. And is a TV movie loosely based on their real life relationship. And it's, I haven't seen it since I was 10, but I loved that movie so much. And so I'm really looking forward to watching that again. And we also lost Ken Berry at the end of the year, uh, one of my favorite actors. And he did a romantic comedy in the early 70s called Every Man Needs One. And we're going to be talking about that too. So we're going to be watching Love and we'll be writing our own love letters to the stars of these films. So I'm really looking forward to that. And if you have anything you want to let us know about, uh, whether you want to talk about what we've talked about in any of our episodes, or if there's anything you want to talk about TV movie related or even TV related, get in touch with us um, through one of, one of our many social media channels. You can contact us on Facebook at the made for TV mayhem show. You can follow us on Twitter at TV mayhem podcast. You can visit our web website at TV mayhem podcast.wordpress.com, or you can email us at TV Mayhem Podcast at gmail.com. That's the one thing I didn't write down. But I think that's it. I think that's it. So drop us a line and just let us know what kind of TV movies you love, what you'd like to see, what we've done that you liked. Uh, If you haven't liked it, send us a nice little email. Don't put it on social media. Um, (laughs) And we will will talk about it. So anyway, thanks, everybody, for listening. And we're going to close out with – one last Michael Park song. I'm going to play the whole song because it's so beautiful. It's one of my favorites oh. of his. It's called Summer Days. So nice. thank you, everybody. Good night. Good night, Bye. everybody.
sunburned faces carelessly. We've been wearing new fashion clothes. Tomorrow I'll meet you at the old swimming hole. Living life the easy way. Summer days. Summer evenings filled with reminiscent feelings on your heart. July blue skies, children's laughter, chasing moonbeams, running after Don't you wait? 